0: going on, guys? Welcome back to the show. Today is going to be a muscle gain Q&A, so thank you to everybody who asked a question. And thanks for everybody who answered the poll, kind of helped me figure out what I want to do with these solo episodes. I think Q&As are great. Sometimes I'll do a little bit longer format, um, but I do love doing these Q&As specifically when it comes to answering your exact questions. So I'm going to do my best here to fit as many as I can into, I don't know, 30 40 minutes max here. So there are a lot of questions that got asked, uh, a lot of similar ones and a lot of good ones, obviously. Things like, you know, how long should I be in a surplus? How big should my surplus be? How much should I be trying to gain per month? And, you know, when is my bulk over? And so I'm going to answer those a little bit rapid fire here just because they were, uh, you know, questions that got asked quite often. And I'm also going to link in the description uh, podcast that I did basically how to set up your muscle gain phase to kind of answer some of these more broad uh, questions here. So how long should you be in a surplus? Man, long enough to see some form of appreciable muscle gain. And I think that that's about eight or about, sorry, about 12 weeks. So I'd say 12 weeks is about your minimum. How long should your surplus be? About 12 weeks. And when should your surplus phase be over? When one of two things happen. When you become, you know, you get to a body fat percentage or a body composition that you are just uncomfortable with to the point where more muscle gain is not worth continuing to push fat gain. I would put an asterisk there and saying if you avoid being uncomfortable at all, then you're probably getting in your way of your best gains. It's probably going to take, you know, you know, being slightly uncomfortable for some time in the pursuit of more muscle. If you never are okay gaining a little bit of body fat, well then this just isn't for you anyway because you know that is something that is probably required to build maximum muscle. Um, and then another question was how big should my surplus be and how much should I be trying to gain? really quick. You don't need a big surplus to maximize muscle gain. Something like 2 to 400 calories over your maintenance calories will give you all the ma- all the muscle building that you can get without unnecessary amounts of extra fat gain. You will gain fat no matter what. But the difference between a 400 calorie surplus and an 800 calorie surplus is not more muscle, it's just more fat. So enough no more dreamer bulk. We're looking at small calorie surpluses. And then that kind of ties into how much should you be trying to gain. You should be trying to gain something like 1% to 2% or about a percent to 2% of your body weight per month. So it, let's say if you're 150 pounds, that's something like 1% to 3 pounds a month. Uh, and I think it's, you know, I definitely think it's a percentage of your body weight is the best way to go about this. But you could just say, okay, 1% to 2 pounds a month is what we're shooting for. Um, you know, if you're gaining more than 2% of your body weight, if you're that 150-pound 150, 150 person, that would be more than 3 pounds a month you're probably just building extra fat. You're building maximum muscle, but probably extra fat, which will probably limit how long you'll be able to do a gain phase. And also just, you know, how uncomfortable you might be gaining that level of body fat. Cool, so first question here is from Lara Cantrell and she asks, is more than one gram per pound of protein helpful for building muscle when you're at maintenance? I a couple of these are going to, I usually like a, uh, putting questions in the, in the Q and a that I have like more extensive answers to, but some of them I, I wanted to keep in here cause they are a bit rapid fire. And I think that they are questions that other people have, there's no research to say that more than one gram per pound of protein is helpful in any circumstance period. Like one gram per pound is plenty of protein in any circumstance, deficit, maintenance, surplus, Um, You could go, you know, the reasons to go over one gram per pound would just be, you know, uh, you are trying your absolute best. It's mostly theoretical. You're going over gram per pound because you just think maybe if there's maybe some muscle, you know, north of one gram per pound that I couldn't get otherwise, I really want to get it. You know, it's more out of like just a theoretical uh, high valuation of getting maximum muscle. And it's mostly theoretical. I think a gram per pound is more than you need probably to maximize muscle. I'd say the research kind of says something like 1.6 gram per kg, which works out to something like 0.7 ish grams per pound. Um, yeah. And so, okay. So a couple of contexts here I'd add is like, if you're in a surplus and you're eating a lot of food, I'd probably say it's probably better to get closer to one gram per pound or just to not hang out at the bottom end of that, uh, range like 0. 0.7 grams per pound, just because when you're in a surplus, you're eating a lot of food, and when you're eating a lot of food, you're probably getting a lot of ancillary carb uh, pro- grams of protein from your carbohydrates, and those really aren't great grams, the, like really great sources of protein. And so, if you're eating 100 grams of protein when you were eating, I don't know, 1800 calories, and now you're eating 2500 calories, you probably want to get your protein up a little bit, or at least keep it exactly where it is, because you're probably getting, you know, you're eating more pasta and more rice and more bread, uh, and you're probably getting more protein from those sources. And those aren't really great sources of protein. So I wouldn't say you need to go over a gram per pound ever. Um, I would say if you go into a surplus, maybe don't don't lean on that bottom end of 0.7. Um, just make sure you're, you're over that. And I think it all comes down to like, hey, 0.7 to one gram per pound or 0.8 to one gram per pound or 0.8 to 1.2 gram per pound. Like it's all the same shit. It's all fine. Within that range of optimal, pick what you like best. Next question is from Katie May Main, and she asks, do you still build muscle when you switch to maintenance after a surplus? Is there a lag time? And I think we have to ask ourselves two questions. One, do you build muscle at maintenance? And two, is there something uh, special about a transitionary period between a surplus and maintenance that would change the answer to that question? So the first question is, do you build muscle at maintenance? Yes. Do you build it slower than you were in a surplus? Yes. Do you build it almost unnoticeably if you're beyond your newbie years? Yes. So there's a technical answer to your question and a practical one. The technical answer is yes. You build muscle at maintenance, period, full stop. Um, Practically, do you build muscle at maintenance? The answer is maybe. Uh, If you're a newbie or you're regaining muscle that you once had, maybe you're coming off an illness or a layoff or an injury, or you're on steroids, uh, or you have been training for a while maybe, but you're finally putting your nutrition and training on an intelligent track. You're trying to you're all of a sudden putting some real structure behind it. And so I think that that's a unique case that people forget. It's like, even if you've been working out for a while, maybe you've never been in an intelligently programmed hypertrophy program and tracked your workouts and focused on, you know, progressive overload and hit your protein, your calories. And it's like, okay, you've been training for a while, but like we still have a lot of knobs to turn. So can you build muscle and maintenance? Yes. Is it slower? Yes. Is it almost unnoticeable if you're beyond your newbie years? Yes. And so practically... The answer is maybe, you know, if you're not a newbie or, again, regaining muscle that you once had or you're on steroids or you're finally putting the pieces all together, practically you're probably not going to build an amount of muscle that you would see on your body, which is what we care about. And then the second question, is there something unique about switching from a surplus to maintenance that would change the answer to that question? The answer is no. There's no lag time. There's nothing special about that transitionary period when you go from eating in a surplus to eating at maintenance, you go from building a lot of muscle at ma- uh, in a surplus to building a whole lot less muscle at maintenance. Um, that's not to say there aren't benefits of being at maintenance and lifting at maintenance and doing what we would call body recomposition. And depending on who you are, maybe you do fall into one of those categories of being new to training or coming off an injury or, you know, uh, you're finally putting all the pieces together to your training and nutrition. So I think I have a lot of clients who see really great body recomposition at maintenance. Not everybody, though, and even those clients will still benefit from occasionally going to a surplus and cycling through surpluses and deficits. Cool. Next question is from S.G. Russo. He or she asks, does everyone have to do a surplus if they train or can you be happy staying at maintenance? I kept this question in here because of the can you be happy staying at maintenance the answer is you can, you, I have no idea. Like it depends on what you want. If you, you can totally be happy at maintenance. If everything I just said about what will happen to you if you lift at maintenance is okay for you. If you're happy with that. And what I think is a lot of people who start lifting, you know, especially if you have a little bit more body fat than you'd want. I think you would do great to just spend two years lifting at maintenance, proper, you know, learning your technique, learning intensity, learning a bit more about your training eating enough protein and eating at maintenance, and you do that for two years, most people are gonna get you know, amazing body comp changes, amazing, like uh, you know, exponentially greater because you're a newbie. And if you do that for two years, and you want more, then I think your answer is surplus and cutting phases. And I think you can do surplus and cutting phases right out of the gate, and you'll still see better gains, but I don't think everybody has to do it. And I think in that context, you have a bit of a better argument for like, okay, I just recomping at maintenance, Maybe even a slight deficit depending on how much extra body fat you have. Eating enough protein and training might be your best option. But I think if you've spent two years doing things right at maintenance, you know, sleeping enough, eating enough protein, training enough, and you want more, you want more muscle, you want more physique change, I think it's time to, you know, let's let's rephrase it. If you're not happy at that point, then I wouldn't stay at maintenance. I would seek out, you know, a more uh, anabolic environment, which would be a surplus, and so does everyone have to be in a surplus if they train or can you be happy staying at maintenance? You can absolutely be happy at st- staying at maintenance, but at some point, if you are not happy with the rate of progress, then it would be time to change. Next one, Mrs. Adam Moot or Mr. Saddam Moot. It's definitely one of those. It starts with MRS. It's confusing here. Um, question is, why doesn't strength increase always mean hypertrophy? Which, And I love this question. I love it. I'm so happy somebody asked this. So when you train, you get a combination of neural and muscular adaptations. Um, You know, most of the strength gains you make in the beginning of your training, when you first start training, you you gain strength rapidly. That's not always, or it's almost entirely not muscle gain. It's actually neural adaptations. And what, what does neural adaptations mean? Well, essentially, we're talking about two kinds of adaptations that happen from training. One that makes you bigger, another one that makes you better, and I know that that's a non-scientific way, and we'll put some science behind it in a second, but like, strength is a skill. Like, you know, hitting a tennis racket, or shooting a basketball. There's motor learning. The first time you squat, your body isn't really good at squatting. And so, week to week, you're getting stronger and stronger. You're like, oh my God, I'm building all this muscle. First of all, you are building muscle. But a lot of those strength gains are actually you just getting better at squatting. Your brain, you know, communicating with the target muscles, uh, uh, teaching them how to contract, you know, in more synchronization. Teaching more muscle fibers to fire. Your motor learning improves. Your ability to execute the technique with more efficiency gets better. And so, a lot of these neural adaptations are actually strength increases. With, you know, outside of the context of hypertrophy. Hypertrophy would mean the actual muscle getting bigger. So there's getting bigger, which is muscle hypertrophy, and there's getting better, which can be these neural adaptations, right? It's like, you know. it it, it is the exact same if you think of like a big wrestler and a small wrestler like you would bet that the big wrestler would win but wrestling is a skill and it's the same with this so like a bigger muscle isn't always a stronger muscle but a bigger muscle has the potential to be a stronger muscle and so what that means is if you take a a bodybuilder who doesn't really lift for strength and you start training him for strength and he starts to you know, improve these neural adaptations, that bigger muscle has the potential to be a stronger muscle. And so you do see people who aren't, you know, are, it it seems disproportionately strong for the muscle size they have. It's because they have amazing neural adaptations. They've made these neural adaptations, um, with, you know, uh, uh, outside of the presence of a lot of hypertrophy. And so they are different things. You can make the muscle bigger, right? Hypertrophy. And you can also make yourself better at executing the movement and thus getting stronger. It's like, there is a reason that Djokovic hits the tennis rack, hits the ball so ridiculously hard. He's not muscular. He's just very good at doing that movement, at producing force in the right movement patterns. Um, And so you can have strength improvements that aren't directly related to hypertrophy, right? And there's also, I would also say there's a component of like just improved like neural drive, which is like, if you've, if you take somebody who's never trained and they also probably don't know how to like voluntarily contract those muscles and really push themselves. And so learning to actually push yourself, get better at doing that, you know, practice, it's literally pr- like practice, um, can be, can create straight strength outcomes, strength adaptations that are independent of hypertrophy. So I hope that kind of, um, let me see if I can sum that up. So when you train, you get, a, you get a combination of neural and muscular adaptations. Muscular adaptations would be like muscle hypertrophy. You make that muscle bigger. Neural adaptations would be stuff like improved motor patterns, like better motor learning, like you actually learning how to do the movement better and execute it. And then we also have this better recruitment and synchronization. So you have uh, like your brain's communication with the target muscles, your brain's ability to make those muscles fire in a way that will produce the most force gets better. And you also see this improved neural drive where it's also your ability to actually push yourself to the limit gets better as you practice doing that. And then again, you have hypertrophy, which is muscle size. Um, And and I guess I would be remiss to say that, uh, to expand on this, you know, a bigger muscle has the potential to be a stronger muscle thing. So muscle size is absolutely a component of strength and a larger muscle has the potential to be a stronger muscle, but there is this large neural component. And yeah, there, here's an analogy that comes to mind and I'm going to probably regret it. It's like, Muscle hypertrophy, imagine you have an army, and you have two armies against each other, and you're thinking about, you know, your army. Your army has 100 people. Muscle hypertrophy, and they all have pistols, let's say. Not great weapons, right? And so m- muscle hypertrophy would be like adding people to the army. You go from 100, 100 uh, soldiers to 200 soldiers. Okay, but they still all have pistols. Neural adaptations would be like, you know, so, so muscle hypertrophy would be like making your muscle bigger. It's like making your army bigger. And neural adaptations would be like making your muscles better, your body better at execution. And so that you might say, you know, neural adaptations would be taking your army's pistols and upgrading them to like M16s or something, right? Um, and so it's a combination. So you have a big army, but the big army's potential for getting better is more because it is a bigger army. If you have 100 soldiers that go from pistols to M16s, it's not as big as 200 soldiers that go from pistols to M16s. So if you have a big muscle it has the potential to be a stronger muscle because muscle size is a large component of strength. So if you build up a base of hypertrophy and then transition to strength training and create more neural adaptations, you'll find a rapid increase in strength. And that is why powerlifters do some hypertrophy training, right, that's why powerlifters are also freaking jacked. If you could, you know, get as strong as you wanted without ever building muscle, then you would see, you know, really tiny, and you do, you see lightweight powerlifters. I just mean the people who are the strongest people on earth are also really big. Cool, hope that helped. Next question, where are we at? 15 minutes here, oh boy, I gotta make moves. We got a lot more, alrighty. Next question is from Jennifer RD, and she asks, how long should I be resting between reps and sets? And so let's take this quickly here. How long should you be resting between reps? And let's talk about tempo. I think when it comes to tempo, there are two things that are almost always true. It's probably better to have, in the context of hypertrophy, it's probably better, or best, let's say best, to have a controlled eccentric which means you don't want to just drop your deadlift and you don't want to just dive bomb into your squat. And when I say controlled, I don't mean five seconds on the way down, which has therapeutic benefits for sure. But I think about one to two seconds is enough for you to maximize that eccentric component of hypertrophy. So it's best to have a controlled eccentric. It's also best to have a forceful concentric, zero to one second, right? You don't want to fling the weights around, but you definitely want to move them with intent. So it's good to have a controlled eccentric and a forceful concentric. And then from there, we're looking at two pause, potential incorporation of pauses. You can pause in the stretch position, let's say at the bottom of your squat, and you can, you know, pause at the top, let's say the top of your squat. Or a better example would be like, um, let's say you're doing a bicep curl. You could pause at the fully stretched position when your arm is straight, and you can full, you can pause at the contracted position when the arm is all the way up and the muscle is shortened in the shortened position. And I think that, you know, those can be helpful, but they're also more contextual. I can't say that they're always best to use. Um, I think pauses are great, but I think if you have a controlled eccentric one to two seconds and a forceful concentric zero to one second, you'll have a rhythm, a tempo that's, you know, as very close to optimal. And then whether you want to add in stretches, pauses at the stretch position, contracted position, this is very contextual. You can, you can pick from there. As far as how long should you be resting between sets? I have an infographic I'm going to link in the description here that really goes through this really well. And so I'm, I'll give you a somewhat more direct version here. Think about what the goal of the set. The goal of the set is to make the target muscle, the limiting muscle, close to failure. And your goal is to perform perform at least five reps, right? And less than five reps we see isn't optimal for hypertrophy. So we want to perform at least five reps and we want to make the target muscle the limiting muscle. So what that means is you have other constraints for how long you should rest. You should rest until you're able to accomplish that. And what does that mean? That means you want to make sure that other things that could be the limiting factor aren't. And so you want to rest long enough to let the target muscle regenerate or, you know, uh, clear the metabolites and, and get back to an ability to perform at least five reps. So you want to rest long enough to perform at least five reps again. You also want to rest long enough that your cardiovascular system is not the limiting factor when you start the next set. You want to rest long enough so that your synergist muscles, the other muscles that you're working, not the, mi- the prime movers, not the ones that you're really targeting, that those are not the limiting factor. You want to rest long enough that your just overall feeling of readiness is back to baseline. You're read, you're mentally feeling strong again. And so, what does this look like? Let's say you squat. Let's say you do a heavy set of barbell squats. How long should you be resting? I'll give you guys some just blanket numbers in a second. But um, how long should you be resting? Well, you should be resting so that your cardiovascular system comes back to baseline, and so it's not the limiting factor for your next next set. I don't know about you guys. When I do squats, I rack the bar. My heart is racing. I am breathing heavy, like I need that to come back to baseline so that my quads can be the limiting factor, not my cardio in my next set. And when it comes to synergist muscles, let's say I rack the bar and, you know, I sit down and my quads feel ready to go. And maybe my cardiovascular system feels ready to go, but my core, my low back is feeling like it needs another minute. Okay. So I'm going to rest another minute because I don't want my synergist muscles to be the limiting factor. If I squat again before my low back is ready, I will be limited in that next set by my low back. That's not what the point. The point is it's a quad exercise, and so the and the last one would be just my overall feeling of readiness. When I rack that bar, I need to sit down for like a few minutes before I feel ready to like just with enough gusto to get back under the bar and really attack my next set. So remember, the point of the set for hypertrophy is to take the target muscle close to failure, to make it the limiting muscle in a set of at least five reps. So you want to rest long enough for that to be the case. You can't have your cardiovascular system or your synergist muscles or your CNS, like your feeling of readiness. You can't let those things be the limiting factor. And what does that look like? Practically, you know, for your heavy compounds, your squats, your deads, your chins, your your stuff that requires a whole bunch of muscle groups is really taxing, I don't know, anywhere from two to four, two to five minutes between sets. Um, and for your isolation movements, anywhere from, you know, one to two minutes. I think, you know, If you take the same example, a bicep curl doesn't really have any synergist muscles. uh, It doesn't tax your cardiovascular system. It doesn't take a lot of psychological readiness. And so you could be ready 60 seconds again. Uh, After 60 seconds, 60, 75, 90 seconds, I think that's plenty for those isolation movements. Next question. Rachel H. Fit. She asks, recently heard not to train chest and triceps in the same day because of preload on the triceps. Uh, okay. Um, I guess what this person is saying, the person who said this to you or, or where you heard it, uh, is that training chest earlier in the session is going to hit the triceps to a degree in which it would interfere with their training later in the session to a, to, to a, some detriment, right? Like training chest is going to hit your triceps a little bit. So then when you get to triceps, you won't be able to fully work them. Long story short, it's nonsense. Total fucking nonsense, um, training chest and tricep is a totally fine way to do things. You know, you also don't have to do that. I mean, there's an infinite way to split up the muscle groups pretty much, but I think, you know, there are plenty of intelligent programs that have a push day in them and a push day would be, you know, some form of chest, shoulders, you know, chest, front delts and triceps. And so if that were the case, and there's a whole lot of people doing shit wrong. And so for all intents and purposes, this is nonsense. Next question is from the determined beauty. Hi, Deb. You talk about RIR. How do you know what that number is if you never go to failure? Great question. Training with RIR, incorporating RIR into your training, doesn't mean you don't go to failure, right? You should be going to zero or one RIR. Zero RIR meaning like, you know, technical failure. You should be going to zero or one RIR on all your movements, more or less, in your last week before deload. So you should absolutely be going to failure occasionally in that last week before D-Load. And that is going to help you kind of shit test where your RIR was in previous weeks if you were doing you know, um, squats, you know, in the six to eight rep range. And, you know, you got six at a hundred pounds, then 700 pounds, 800 pounds, and then it's your final week and you get 13 at a hundred pounds. Cause you take it all the way to failure and you look back, you're like, holy crap, I was super far from failure. So you're absolutely right. You should be going to failure. And one of the, man, I would say that the actual best benefit of going to failure is exactly what you're talking about. It's actually knowing where failure is going to failure has a really, uh, very, marginal, disproportionately, or or a poor return on that investment the closer you get to failure. And I'm not saying you should never go to failure, but I'm saying the biggest benefit of going to failure is not some magical amount of muscle gain that's being made. Uh, it's knowing where failure is so you can more properly assess RIR in other days. And so I definitely think going to 0 or 1 RIR is really what you should be doing in your last week. And I say 0 or 1 because some movements I just wouldn't program a 0 RIR. I wouldn't program a 0 RIR back squat just out of fear of, you know, making half my clients have to bail out because they think zero IR means failure. It doesn't mean failure. it means rack the bar and knowing that your next rep would be something you'd have to bail out. You'd fail on your next rep, but that's not something I am, I really need people to to set themselves up in that environment where it's a very high chance of people fucking that up. Um, so I wouldn't program a zero RIR, RIR deadlift or a squat or probably bench press unless you have a spotter. Um, in which case yeah, still I think it, I still think that it's not as important to do that. Nice. Next question is from Green Beans z- 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 z, with a bunch of Z's. And she asks, How much muscle can a newbie woman hope to grow per month? I'm gonna be I'm gonna be as friendly as possible here. I have no fucking clue. I have no clue. I have no clue what the answer to this question is. Um, I'm sure a Google search would help, but the truth is I I don't even want to bother googling it because I don't think thinking about this stuff is helpful in any way. I just think it's a distraction. Like, there are so many variables. First of all, how much can anybody build per month? Well, are you in a surplus? How big of a surplus? How consistently are you in a surplus? How much protein are you eating? How hard are you training? How much volume are you doing? How much sleep are you getting? What are your genetics? And so it's massively inter-individual. There's so much individuality here. And that's not even the basis of why I wouldn't even go ahead and answer this question. It's because I just don't think just to me, it feels like a distraction, like worrying about People are like, do I have good genetics? It's like, who the fuck cares? It's like, do your best, you know, do your best with everything we said, get into a surplus, eat adequate protein, you know, 0. 0.7, 0. 8 to 1.2 grams, something like that, you know, train with adequate volume, adequate intensity, sleep seven to nine hours and just do your best. And I just think that I'll, I'm not saying that green beans, all love here. I'm not saying that you're obsessing over this question I know you're not and most people are not but even just whatever brain power is being put towards this is being uh displaced from more fruitful endeavors more fruitful use of that effort like focus more on the process focus more on all that stuff protein training volume sleeping all that stuff and don't worry about what is the maximum you can expect like it doesn't it, it won't what if I told you 20 pounds what if I told you 10 pounds 15 pounds eight pounds 30 pounds like it shouldn't change your course of action. You should still be doing your best. Um, and I'm sure you can Google this for sure, and I hope you do, and, and we can you can put it to bed, but I just, I have no clue. Um, I just think that this is a distraction from actually applying the principles and doing your best. Like people talk a lot about what's my genetic potential, like how much more muscle do you think I can build? I don't know, but do your best. Just follow the principles. Eat, train, sleep adequately intelligently structure things and just do your best. I don't wanna see this be something that you're hung up on. I'm not saying you're hung up on it, but I just don't want this to be something that takes over a lot of brain power, a lot of space emotionally for you. Cool, we got, I'm doing a good job. Three more questions. All right, I'll get through all three of these. We're at 25 minutes here. Uh, Lisa Mini 99 asks, and she asked a question actually that a bunch of people asked, so a lot of other people asked this question. Do you have to do ab exercises or are your main lifts enough to work your core? And the key word is, the key phrasing here is enough to work your core. And so enough to work your core? Probably yes. If you're squatting, deadlifting, pressing, rowing, lunging, you're working your core to a degree in which you will get a stronger core. But there were other people who asked, you know, do I have to do direct ab exercises or are my main lifts enough to get me a six pack? So if your goal is to work your core, to have a stronger core, I think that you're doing your main lifts and training adequately close to failure and learning to brace and totally you're squatting, you're deadlifting, pressing, rowing, lunging, like totally your core is getting really taxed. It's going to get stronger and you will have a strong core. Is that enough to get ripped abs? It's a totally different question. The answer is maybe, maybe not. And because man, having ripped abs is like mostly body fat percentage and genetics, like 90% of what your abs look like is your body fat percentage and your genetics. The 10% is how much you work your abs, let's say. And so it's I'm not saying it's a futile thing that you shouldn't train your abs, but I'm just saying like okay, like an example that I've been heard that I've heard being thrown around that I love is like has anyone ever seen pumping iron? So even if you haven't, like go go Google what Arnold Schwarzenegger looked like at the 1975 Mr. Olympia. I think that was probably his best look. Like man the man has like a four pack. I'm not shitting on Arnold. He looks fucking amazing, but like he doesn't have a visible six pack, let alone more than that. You'd expect that from like an absolute shredded uh, elite best bodybuilder in the world. He has like a four and a half pack. That's because it's mostly genetics. You look at, and I think if you go to the 1980, this is a good example too. If you go to 19, if you Google pictures for the 1980 Mr. Olympia, I believe Frank Zane wins. Um, Frank Zane has a totally different body. He's not nearly as big as Arnold. uh, And he has, you know, amazing abs, but he still doesn't have this like eight pack that people think of. Like that is mostly genetic. Uh, You know, Frank Zane's super, super aesthetic, but at the same time, like you can Google people who have more abs numerically, like eight abs. Um, And so I just think it's mostly genetics and body fat percentage. And so body fat percentage is certainly something that's in your control. So I think if you want to have ripped abs, Man, you should get pretty lean, um, and you'll you'll find out what your abs look like. And if you get pretty lean and you see abs in there, and you're like, man, they're just not they're not very big. They're not very um, they don't kind of uh, protrude a lot. They don't push up against the skin a lot. I don't see them very well. Do ab exercises, like do ab exercises. If getting a visible six pack is your goal, if you're listening to this, and you're like, I want a visible six pack. Get leaner, and for sure do specific ab exercises for ab hypertrophy. Right? Like, is it going to make or break what your abs look like? I don't know. It's super, again, a super genetic, body fat based. But it makes sense to me if it's important to grow your abs while you're getting leaner, to give yourself the best shot of making your abs look the best that they can, it makes sense to me to do it. And if I had to do, if I had to pick certain exercises that I think are better for building your abdominal, your six pack muscles, I would probably say hanging knee raises and weighted. Or non weighted, but decline full range of motion sit ups. Something where you're flexing at the spine uh, from the top down and something for your, where you're kind of like flexing at the spine also, but from the bottom up. So hanging knee raises versus a decline sit up. I think those would be my bread and butter. Awesome. We've got two more here. Both of them are from the same person. I like the question. So thank you, Alyssa. Uh, Alyssa uh, underscore AMC fitness. She asks strength versus hypertrophy training. When to use them? Jeez. The true answer is it depends on your goal. Like if you want to get stronger, bias more of your training towards strength. If you want to get bigger, bias more of your training towards hypertrophy. But I picked this question because I think it's important to understand that like you never just get one and not the other. Hypertrophy training will make you stronger. Strength training will make you bigger. But obviously, you know, one will do their job better than the, the, you know, the ancillary benefit you're getting. So strength training will make you stronger than hypertrophy training, training, but not as big as hypertrophy training would make you and obviously vice versa. But man, if you're a newbie and you're just starting out, I think strength training is great. You're going to get stronger and bigger. It almost doesn't matter. Um, And you, you know, (sighs) hmm, My, my take on this would be just from working with people, just kind of I'm considering who's listening to this podcast, I'm thinking most people want to get stronger and build muscle. And again, if you're a newbie, either style of training will work. And so let's define really quickly, strength training would be most of your reps in that like eight to one to eight range, maybe one to 10, mostly compound lifts, low volume, um, better for strength, better for neural adaptations like we talked about. And then maybe hypertrophy style training, we can roughly define as, you know, reps in the six to 30 rep range, you know, introduction of a bit more isolation movements, compound and isolation, and higher volume, right? Better for muscle growth, better for those muscular adaptations. Um, and, and again, it, man, it depends on your goal and what you like better. And so take your goal and take what you like and the marriage of those two is going to direct you in the direction you want to go. Um, but again, I think of the people who are listening to this and the people that I work with, I'd say most people care a bit more about building visible muscle than they do about getting stronger. And that does not mean that they don't care about getting stronger. Most people would answer, I think they, they, okay, I want, I want both. I want to get stronger and I want to see more muscle. But if you had to rank them because you should rank them, it's not, I want one and not the other. It's what is the rank of what I want more. I'd say most people would rank, you know, building muscle, visible muscle, changing my body composition over getting stronger. And I think that, that it's important to rank them because once you rank them, you're like, okay, cool. Like you want muscle, visible muscle more than you want strength. You definitely want strength too, but you want visible muscle more. I think that's going to push more people towards biasing, more towards hypertrophy style training. Um, you will for sure get stronger, a lot stronger doing hypertrophy style training. But you'll get a whole lot more jacked than you would if you were doing specific strength training. right? You'll get less strong than if you're doing strength training, but you'll get way more jacked. And you just said, okay, what's my hierarchy? What's my valuation of those two things? Is that you wanted to build muscle more than you wanted to get strong? And great, that's what hypertrophy training does. You're certainly, you will and you should be getting stronger doing hypertrophy-style training if you're doing it correctly. correctly. Um, but you won't get as strong as if you were doing strength training. But you get a whole lot bigger, and you're the one who said, okay, that's my one-two order. Um, and so I think that you should use them, and, and you know... When does a strength athlete need hypertrophy training? When does a hypertrophy athlete need specific strength training? This is a, a nuanced conversation for another day, but I think you have to think of what are your goals, rank, order. Don't. It's not one or the other, but you have to put them in a hierarchy. So if you want more muscle and you kind of want to get stronger too, hypertrophy training. If you really care about the numbers and you want to lift heavier and you want to be stronger, and you also kind of want to build some muscle too, great, strength training. And then I think, you know, obviously you can fluctuate between the two, but that's a little bit more nuanced conversation for another day. Alrighty. Last question. We're already here again. Alyssa uh, asks how to go from bulk to cut without losing gains. Does it have to be slow deficit of calories? So the, the, the kind of question rephrasing would be like, okay, you're bulking at 2,500 and you're cutting calories are 1700, let's say. And do you need to do like a step-by-step approach to get down there? Or can you just jump right to 1700? Is there some downside to jumping right there? The answer is no, there is no downside to just jumping into your deficit calories. You are absolutely welcome to do that. Um, the only, it's the same thing with reverse dieting. It's like the only reason to do these like step-by-step approaches is if it would make you practically more successful. If the culture shock, the lifestyle shock of going from 2,500 to 1,700, um, it, you know, would really throw you off and make you less adherent and less successful and you would enjoy it less, then sure, you can do a slow, uh, you know, downtick of calories, but physiologically there's no benefit. And so if you're at the end of your bulk and you're like, Fuck, man, I just really want to cut now, like you're very welcome to go right into your cutting calories and make adjustments from there. There's no physiological reason for you to take a pit stop at maintenance. Now, some people would say, well, let me, I'll come back to that. So how to, how, how to do that without losing gains. Well, it's important that you keep all the stimuli that tell your body to maintain muscle intact. And it's like, you need to keep sending the signal as you lower calories, you need to send all the signals that say, don't touch my muscle. What are those signals? Well, it's training intensity and volume. You need to be training adequately. Your protein needs to be high enough and your sleep needs to be quality. If you are doing all those things, you're very welcome to just go right to your cutting calories. I don't think the, I think there's two questions here. It's how do I not lose gains when I go into a deficit and do I need to do it slowly? Do you need to do it slowly? No. How do you go from a bulk to a cut without losing gains? Well, you keep all the stimuli that tell your body to build or maintain muscle. You keep those intact. H- uh, hard training, enough volume, enough protein, enough sleep. And when you lower your calories, you'll burn fat and you'll be sending a lot of stimuli to your body, a lot of messages that say, hey, don't touch this muscle. Right? I need this muscle. And so you'll do totally fine. Um, I'd say some people would say and it's something I've said before and I've changed my mind on it, so I'll give, I'll throw myself a little bit of under the bus slash, you know, there, um, is that, you know, when you're going from, when you're ending a bulk, you, there is some delayed muscle growth that if you go into a cut, you will miss out on. And so there's like some delayed muscle growth that if you go to maintenance afterwards, you can solidify those gains and then you go to a cut and you will have solidified those gains. And so, that's that's cool and physiologically makes sense, but like let's take an example of, okay, uh, you it's January first and in you know you have the opportunity this month. You just ended a gain phase. It's January first. You want to go right into a cut, or you want to go on cut on on February first. You have this last month, and you're thinking, do I need to go to maintenance for this month so I can solidify these delayed muscle gains? Or your other option would be to stay in a surplus for that month. And I, that just makes a lot of sense to me that what is more anabolic? What will solidify gains better? Another month of gaining or a month at maintenance? It's another month of gaining. And so this idea of you need a maintenance block between your gain and your cut, I don't know, I don't really see it. You Why not just do another month of gaining? Someone's like, okay, you're gonna, you miss out on the delayed muscle growth if you don't take a maintenance phase. And I would say, okay, what if you take, what if you just do another month of a surplus? Wouldn't you do that and more? And and just think there's no counter answer to that. Um And so you can do that. It's totally fine. Like I said, if practically going down in calories a little bit, going from 25 to 22 to 17, maybe, let's say something like that, would be something that practically didn't disrupt your life as much and you're practically more adherent because of it, man, go nuts. That's totally fine. I don't see an issue with that. You know, we're not professional bodybuilders looking to dot every I and cross every T. Like if that's practically what it takes for you to be most successful, I support it uh, for sure. All right, guys. Super fun episode. Kept this one at 37 minutes. So I appreciate everybody who asked a question. Thank you so much. I'm going to be putting a couple more of those polls up just to see what you guys want to hear. Make sure I'm making episodes that people actually want to listen to. So when I put that Q&A box up, please answer. Throw something in here. Even if it's a specific question to you, I will get it on the podcast. Thank you so much, guys. See you in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at JordanLipsFitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.